0: Hey, welcome to Madison Story Slam. I am your host, Adam Rosted, Uh, working my way through these backlog episodes. Uh, This episode is uh, from October of 2016. We had a costume contest this night. The theme was adventure, so a lot of good stories on this one. Uh, Our next Story Slam is this Saturday, April 15th. The theme is Here Goes Nothing. So, you can come hear a lot of great stories about people doing things that they're not quite sure of and all that good stuff. Uh, Then, May 20th is our Story Slam in May, and the theme for that is Death, Sex, and Money. Our first story is from Jen Bizotto.
1: Thank you, Adam. Thanks for hosting this, and thank you for paying out of pocket. I know there are very few things I can pay for out of pocket, so I really appreciate it. Um, But my name is Jen, um, and when I heard the theme for this uh, evening, I knew I had to tell a story because I have a good one. And like most good stories, it starts with impending unemployment. My roommate and I graduated from college with our fancy pansy liberal arts degrees. And to be fair, between the two of us, we had three degrees, but only one of them was an English degree. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Um, So anyway, we're graduating. We don't have jobs lined up. Our lease expires in May, and we're like... (sighs) Like, what are, I mean, what are we doing? Like, what are we going to do? Um, and we're like, we can either find some shitty place on Craigslist to sublet for the summer and like, I don't know, work in a basement somewhere. Um, or we could go on an epic cross-country road trip and pay gas instead of rent. Right? Right? We also um, forged our way through this new concept we call stealth camping. Um, stealth camping is, you know, it's myriad and wonderful in all of its possibilities. It mostly involves us, um, stopping at truck parking off the freeway and, um, pitching our tent, which thank the Lord was green. So we, we actually blend in really well. And, you know, sometimes, um, people would like be walking their dogs early in the morning, um, and they would see us and invariably they would look away like they were doing something wrong, um. And so we never got busted. Not once. Whole summer of stealth camping. So anyway, our ultimate... We decided our destination as Tacoma, Washington, because that's where my roommate's mother conveniently lived. Um, So we were like, let's do it. Um, And also, um, the center, in addition... To unemployment centers around the love of my life. Her name is Emma, and she's a cute little dog that was my roommate's dog. And we were going to pick Emma up in Tacoma and take her back to Michigan with us um, so that they could live together and be unemployed together. Um, because, you know, what's unemployment without a dog along with you? <laughs> um, so... We pick up Emma in Tacoma as scheduled, and then we had reserved this backcountry permit in Glacier National Park. I don't know if you guys know about how this reservation system goes, but you have to reserve that like months ahead of time. I mean, we were so lucky to reserve this like coveted spot because like the glaciers are melting, so like there's only so much time. It's really sad, I know. Um, That also led to us deciding that it was now or never and so Emma had to come with us into Glacier National Park and at first this sounded like a great idea until we read lots of scary warnings about taking dogs into Glacier but we were like literally what do we have to lose like prison has a roof like I don't know (laughs) So, Emma, my roommate, and I go to Glacier National Park and we watch this lovely video um, that they make you watch that's like service dogs permitted. I <laughs> think you can see where this is going. So, we piece together a lovely vest for the love of my life, Emma. And suddenly my roommate had this anxiety condition where she would seize up and only Emma could know when that was about to happen so that she, so that my roommate didn't fall off a cliff. Emma was very talented, I know um, so day one we like get the bus to our um, the trailhead where we had to go um, and we had scheduled. A couple nights in the back country, and I don't know if you know what back country is, but it's like, you know, I like to say that I grew up in the back country, but this is like certified back country, um, so. It- it's, it's special. So we were, we were so excited. We were going to see the glaciers. We had our reservation. We had our service animal. We were good to go. And so everything is going well. Like, you know, we're like looking around and we saw a bull moose. It was great. We're like, this is, psh, this is fine. Um, and then we encounter a park ranger who was like, the fuck is that? Like, I was like, Whoa, don't talk about Emma like that. What? Like, We were really upset because he was like, get that dog out of here. And we were like, whoa, did you not watch the video at the beginning? Because in the video officer, I mean, ranger, I, I saw that they were allowed. So he literally gets out his satellite phone. We're in the certified middle of nowhere and satellites to the station and was like, what put the video on right now and watch it and tell me if there's a service dog in there. And we stood there for like half an hour while they confirmed that yes, yes, there was a guide dog in the video and we were, we were good to go. And he goes, but tell me you ladies have bear spray. And we're like, well, we saw it in the gift shop and it was $50. So now, and he was like, all right, well, I just, I just want the best for you. So here's mine. And we were like, wow, like, all right. Emma won him over too. Okay. All right. So then we're climbing up and it's kind of getting a little bit late. Um, and when it gets dark, you know, you really got to pitch your tent. So we're kind of hustling along and we're going up these steep switchbacks. Um, and then as soon as you get to the top, that's when, like, the glacier magic happens. So we're, like, really excited. And we're, like, we're in the backcountry. We smuggled in our dog. Like, we're going to get jobs. This is great. Um, and then we turned a corner, and there was a grizzly bear with two cubs. I don't know if you know about cubs, but mama bears don't don't like Emmas around their cubs. So... The grizzly bear charged me. I did not know this at the time, but I hope you all take one thing away tonight, and that is 80% of grizzly bear charges are bluff charges. So she stops right in front of me, and I'm, like, looking this bear in the eyes. like, And I look down the cliff, and I look at her, and I look down the cliff, (laughs) and I look over at my roommate and she has Emma in her arms and turns to me and goes, I shit you not. Help me. (laughs) Because you see, my roommate had the bear spray. And Emma. So I look at the bear, and I look down the cliff, and I look at my roommate, and I grab Emma. It's my first instinct, of course. So I have Emma and my roommate... Has the bear spray like this. And I swear to God, that bear looked at the bear spray and she looked at the bear spray and she was like, nah, fuck that. And she trundled away up the hill. Unfortunately for us, she trundled right where we were going. Um, So we we were, you know, a little concerned about this. So we we sat down and we were shaking there silently um, for like two hours. And we're like, okay, it's getting dark. Like, we got to go. And it suddenly occurred to us that's why people say, hey, bear. I don't know. If you guys have heard that, that's like what you're supposed to say. So you don't like startle mother bears when you turn a corner. Anyway, so we're walking along the rest of the trip like, these glaciers are great, but hey bear, hey bear, hey bear. And so we are hey bearing like crazy. And we finally descend into our camp for the night. And we're like, oh my God, I can't believe we're alive. I almost just jumped off a cliff. But Emma's safe, we're safe. Everything's fine. And we get there, and it's already dark, and it's like a communal campsite. So everybody's gathered around the communal fire. And they were like, We heard you guys, hey, bearling, <laughs> there aren't any bears around here. And we were like, <laughs> But at least we had our adventure. Thank you.
2: Nope.
0: <laughs> Tell you what, if I come upon a grizzly and I got a dog on my arms, oh. <laughs> you go that way, I'm going this way. You're replaceable. <laughs> oh, people didn't like that. <laughs> it's true. Dogs are replaceable. Uh, <laughs> that is terrifying. I would try and wrestle the bear. I think. Did you hear about this this guy this over this last month who got attacked by a bear twice? He's out for a hike in like Utah, I think. I don't remember where. And he comes up to this. He's just walking, and he kind of same thing. Rounds a corner, and there's a mama bear with the cub. And he's like, "Oh, I'm gonna die now." And so he lays down to die on his stomach with his hands. You're <laughs> you're supposed to put your hands. Over your neck to protect your vitals and all that stuff, all that meaningless junk. Um, and the bear comes up and just is like, rah, 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 and like attacks him, and he's like, this sucks, I'm dying. So then the bear, like, goes away, and he gets up, and he's like, wow, that, like, really sucked, and, and, uh, that bear's a real jerk, and so, uh, he starts walking away, and the bear, like, came around, like, a military tactic, like, went around and met him where he, like, in the the path that he's walking, and he's like, what the fuck, (laughs) so he does it again, he lays down, the bear, like, he, Here's, here's why this guy is dumb. So the, the bear, like, put a huge gash in his head with, like, just flappy skin. Like, just... And then he's got this huge scratch down his arm. I mean, he's got bites all over his body. The reason I know this is because after the second time when the bear left him alone... Yeah, this is a sure sign of our society today. He took out his phone and was like... A video selfie. I was like, well, I just got attacked by a bear. Check that out. What? <laughs> no! You Run! Get out of there. That bear wants to kill you. It's probably going around the other way now. Uh, So that's terrifying. You're lucky you're alive. Or, I don't know, that guy's famous now, so maybe it would have been better if you had gotten attacked (laughs) by a bear. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I've lost the audience. Anyway, our next storyteller, I believe, is it your first time telling a story here? All right, so first timer here. Please give it up for Jacqueline Prelip.
3: (laughs) Hey, everybody. I'm Jacqueline Prelip. Um, tonight, I want to tell you about my adventure um, transitioning from male to female. I'm a transgender woman. Um, I was raised in a military family. Um, my dad was in the Air Force until I was about eight, um, eight years old, and then he got out. Um, but as a result, we frequently moved around. We moved around all the time, and I still I move around all the time still, even even to the day, I'm 28 years old, and I still move every, every couple years. Um, My mother was raised Catholic, and she tried to raise my brother and I to, um, you know, live according to the church, but we just were, we didn't want it. We were disinterested. Um, My brother, he picked on me mercilessly growing up, and um, I always just felt really bad about myself. I felt um, that I wasn't, you know, worthy. Um, Gay people in general were not spoken highly of in my house. Um, I basically got the impression that, you know, they're embarrassing or perverted or just gross, just something to be made fun of, Um, and I just... Um, when I was younger, I just really wished I was female instead of male. Um, when I was seven years old, I asked for all-girl toys, for you know, all-girl toys for Christmas. And, and the, my favorite one was um, a fluffy-to-come-here puppy. You'd be like, come here, fluffy, and you'd just, like, clap, and then it would come towards you, and I loved it. <laughs> um, but my brother, like, my twin brother, he would make fun of me, and he just, um, like, I just, I was so embarrassed. I just, I kept my, fi- my, my feelings hidden for the next 13 years. Um, middle school and high school were really difficult for me. Um, all the boys that I was, you know, hanging out with, I was all boys that I hung out with, and they would all talk about hot girls all the time. And, you know, I would talk about that too, but they didn't realize that, you know, secretly, like I would be upstairs, like trying on my mom's clothes and like makeup in the bathroom and just being like, why does my body look the way it looks? And, you know, I, just, I would look at my flat boy chest and just wish that I had breasts and just wonder what it would be like if I was female instead of male, um, and I just, I hated my facial hair and I hated my eyebrows and I just hated everything about my body. It was like my darkest secret and I had planned on just taking it to my grave. I was just like, this is just, I'm never going to talk about this. Let's just do this in secrecy. Um, but I became really painfully uncomfortable with my body um, and I started gaining weight because I started overeating just because I was what I used as a vice, I guess, at the time. Um, At age 17, my brother, he was like, I'm not really interested in hanging out with you. And he just like started dating girls. And I was like, I was devastated. I was really jealous. And I was angry at at him for, you know, kind of abandoning me. Um, but when I was 18, I started losing weight, and I started becoming more comfortable with myself, and I started community college. and I was like, hey, you know what? Now I have more independence. I can dress the way I want. I can be the person I want. But it was still in my hometown, and I started dressing more femininely at the time. But my brother and my parents saw me doing it, and they were making fun of me, and I just felt really humiliated. So I stopped. Um, but then um, after I got done doing community college, um I was like, I need to go to university because if once I go to a university I can be far away and I can just dress any way I want, I can date whoever I want, and I wanted to you know, I just I was really wanting to have, like have sex with a man at the time. Um and I did when I when I went to college and I um I went to school in southern Illinois, Southern Illinois University, a little town called Carbondale. Um and I, I hooked up with a lot of guys and it was really great, but they just weren't um supportive of my gender identity. They would be like, you're a gay boy. You're not a, you're not a girl. And it was just, it was just really frustrating for me. And I just felt really, really confused. Um, I felt really, really guilty about having sex with guys, just, you know, being raised Catholic and having a twin brother and my dad and just like the military thing and just the whole thing. I was really, really guilty. So I turned to drugs and alcohol to cope. Um, and I just, I didn't care what people thought of me when, you know, I was intoxicated. So um, I started shaving my legs and I would shave my you know, my armpits and my chest. And I would, always, I would always wear these, like, little black cut-off jean shorts when I was younger. And I, I would always cut them shorter and shorter. And the shorter they got, the happier I was until they were basically, like, little daisy dukes. And it was really embarrassing. <laughs> I remember mowing my parents' yard in these little daisy dukes. And my dad was just like, what is going on? Yeah. <laughs> Um, but when I was in Carbondale, I, b- I basically befriended um, like the people that are you know, played in punk bands and artists and just other you know, queer kids and stuff like that. I'm still friends with them to this day. I'm going down there next weekend. Um, but we, would, we would do like basement shows, like punk shows and we'd have all night parties. It was awesome. I loved it. Um, but the, in the last six months I was there, I was really, um, I started experimenting with like psychedelics and, um, the first trip was alone in my apartment and that's when everything just kind of like hit me all, all at once. I was like, I was like this like lifelong anger I've been experiencing. This is gender dysphoria. This is, it's me being uncomfortable with my identity and just not, nothing's fitting. And I just really wanted to be a girl and I just hate being a boy. And this is just it. And um, at that time, I, I came out, um, I, was just, I was really confused, and I was like, you know what, I need to search for answers. And I was reading the internet, and I bought books by like, transgender authors, and I'm like, why do I feel this way? Like, do other people feel this way? I, just, I, I wasn't really aware of what transgender meant. I just didn't really understand. Um, and I also came out publicly as trans, like after I you know, started kind of realizing everything. Um, and my mom was furious with me. Um, I knew she was. I, I knew she would be furious, and she was. I was devastated. My brother told me this. she's like, he was like, hey, um, mom said that um, she would rather have a serial killer for a kid than a transgender woman. And it just like, it broke my heart. It was really hard. Um... And after after um, I was in Carbondale, I moved up to Chicago for a little bit. And that's when I started presenting as female all the time. Like, I hadn't started hormones or anything yet. I was just, like, dressing like a woman. And I also was starting to do laser hair removal because, like, the worst part of my gender dysphoria is, like, with, like my facial hair. And I was like, this is the first thing that has to go. So I started doing laser hair removal, and it hurt like a bitch. It was terrible. Um, but it, it started to work. It was I've done a lot of sessions, and it It works. For me, at least. Um, after three months in Chicago, though, I was feeling really, really depressed just from the gender dysphoria, just from all the partying I did when I was in, you know, in Carbondale, and I just didn't have enough money. And my parents, they moved to California from Illinois when I was in college. And I was like, Mom and Dad, I'm doing horribly. Can I please just move in with you? And they're like, yes, you absolutely can. So I moved in with them. Um, and I moved to San Jose, California, where they moved. Um, but the people in my new neighborhood were really mean to me. They would, like, yell out the car window at me and call me faggot and, and stuff like that. And I lived by a high school. And, like, I just – I feel like I was, like, kind of, like – everybody knew who I was. And they would, like, point and laugh at me. Um, And I just became really afraid of the harassment. So I basically started dressing more like gender neutrally, I would say, instead of femininely, just because I was like, I just can't deal with this right now. I just can't deal with, you know, getting picked on. Um, and my dad, he ended up getting a job transfer to Madison, Wisconsin. And even though it was so, super beautiful in California, I was just like, I don't care. I, I don't care about the winters. Like, let's move to Madison. And um, right when I got here, I got a full-time job. Um, and I made uh, you know friends with my coworkers. And I even told a few of them, I was like, hey, like I'm trans. I'm planning on transitioning. I just don't know how. And I feel like they didn't really take me seriously at the time. Um, I finished my laser hair removal here in Madison, a place on University Avenue, um, and I ended up saving enough money, and I moved out. Um, I got on my company's health insurance, and I established with a primary care physician, and I went in there, and I was like, hey, my name, you know, I told her my name before, and I was like explaining the situation, and I ended up walking out of the doctor's office that day with a prescription to hormones, one to lower my testosterone, and the other one is to raise my estrogen. Um, And then after doing that for about five months, I was like, you know, I'm obviously going to have to change my name. My my name was Jake before. Um, I decided that Jacqueline was a really fitting name and I just thought it was really beautiful and it was good for me. So um, that's what I did. Um, People saw my name change on Facebook like before I legally changed it. Um, And they were like, is that what you want to be called? And I said, yes. And then I guess basically my company was like, hey, we should just send out a company-wide email to everybody in the whole company informing them of the change. And it was super awkward. Um... (laughs) It was terrible. But most people have been really accepting. Most people have been fine. But there's also like a handful of people that have basically just been icing me out. They just don't talk they don't talk to me anymore and they're just like shitty with me. And um people get mad when I correct them when I'm just like, Hey, like I'm a she, I'm not a he, please. Like come on, like like, you know how I feel about it, and um, just, like, if they use my old name, it's, like, they don't understand that it's embarrassing, because especially now in my transition, like, some people don't even know I'm trans when I'm inter- interacting with them for the first time, and then if they, you know, call me something, you know, from prior, um, they, they're outing me, and then it also makes me feel, like, dysphoric when it happens, just, it's really, like, it's, okay, like, hey, just don't do it, and they just don't understand that it's a big deal, And I was also informed that a bunch of people were calling me a man in a dress, like a bunch of my coworkers, and they were sitting around, and I was just, like, really pissed, and I went up to the main culprit in this little cubicle, and I confronted him, and he cowered. It was so funny. I loved it so much. Yeah. Um, I really don't like that guy. Um, last winter, I had a serious talk with my parents because they were really um, hostile and unaccepting of me and my transition. Um, my one strong relationship with my mom, it hit rock bottom and it just was not the same. I started bawling in the middle of our conversation because I just felt really disrespected. And I feel like ever since that conversation happened, they now, like, they, they respected me. They, they started to. They, they realized I was like, I'm not just joking here. This isn't a joke. Um, And they also ask her like, "Are you interested in dating men?" Like, we don't understand like, like with your sexuality or whatever. And I'm like. Well, I mean, yeah, I am. And then it was just like the hardest thing for me to tell my parents. And they're like, you know what? We'll support you. Um, and it, it was amazing. Um, but shortly thereafter, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. Me and my mom were really, really close, like extremely close up until the transition thing. But within three months, she had to go through surgery and she had to go through like chemotherapy. And she was 50 and she lost all of her hair and she had beautiful hair and um, And she ended up catching pneumonia when she was going through chemo. And she was on life support at St. Mary's on Park Street for five days. And we had to pull the plug on her because there was just no chance of recovery. And she just died, like, out of nowhere in the middle of my transition. And, like, right when things were, like, in an upswing. Um, But she did give me a beautiful dress right before she died. And she called me Jacqueline and she hugged me. And, yeah, that was, like, the last time I've seen her. And that was, like, March. So it was a few months ago. And I miss her. And she was, like, the biggest support of my life. Um, She was just having a hard time accepting my reality, but she did, and I'm really glad that it happened before she died. Um, But since since I've started this whole transition, I've had my name and my gender marker, like, on everything. It says female and it says Jacqueline. Nothing says male. Nothing says my old name. I even had a petition with the state of Florida to get my gender changed on my birth certificate, Um, but the next step of my transition, I'm planning on having an orchiectomy, which is the surgical removal of my testicles. And there's two reasons why this is important to me. One is that, um, I won't have to take testosterone blockers anymore. I'll just have to take estrogen only. So it's better for my body. And also my body will just feminize further. And it's just, that's really important to me. So I'm, I'm going to do that this winter. It's going to be like some pretty, pretty major, well, it's not that major of a surgery. It's just, it's going to be kind of traumatic. I don't know. I'm just kind of scared about it a little. Um, but there's no doubt that I've had a lot of, you know, hardships during this transition with my parents and, um, also coworkers, but I've had strangers, you know, online, like harass me and like bully me online. I had somebody hack my Facebook account a few weeks ago and they deleted all my friends, like all the people that support me and like change my gender, like from like female back to male, like some hacker did that to me for some reason. Um, but, uh, I'm I so glad I did it. I don't care. All those bad things, they don't mean anything to me. Everything's fine. I'm so glad I did it. I feel like a weight's been lifted from my shoulders. Um, I just feel like my life is basically starting now. So everything's great. Like, I've just had a lot of shit happen, but it's fine. And, like, I'm doing good. And I'm, like, like everything's, like, it's going up. It's on an upswing. So I'm really happy. And that's about it. That's the end of it. Thanks. <laughs>
0: Thanks, Jacqueline. Uh, This is why I love Story Slam. You heard me say at the beginning that it really takes guts to come up here and share. Uh, Story Slam is fun because most of the time people get up here and tell a funny story. Uh, But every now and then somebody gets up here and really, really just like opens up themselves and like bears themselves to you. And I think that's a really cool thing. Uh, I think... It's really interesting. We've had uh, another trans person tell a story here before, a really great story. Um, Her name is Christina. If you want to listen to that, you can go find the podcast uh, for last October, actually. It's uh, Story Slam Petrified. Um, And uh, what's really interesting is that transitioning is this really public thing, especially if you want to stay living like where you are. I feel like the only way to transition... Uh, privately, as if, like, you move to a new city and, like, start from there. Um, and, like, I would imagine that transitioning, being so public, is difficult. But then to have the guts to come up here in front of all these strangers and talk about it, like, I don't know, I have so much respect for that. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. So here's the part where I tell you that I wanted to cancel Story Slam. I didn't want to do Story Slam anymore. Uh, we So our season goes from September through May. And after May of last year, uh, I just was burnt out, I think. I've been doing this for four years, I think. And uh, I was just kind of done. I, I, I thought, we've accomplished what we set out to do. Uh, the moth is in town now. So like there's always going to be somewhere that people can go to tell stories and um it just this takes a lot out of me a uh, uh, saturday night story slam i come i get here at 5 today my wife and i got here at 4:30 we set it all up we do everything uh and by the end of the night i'm just so burnt out and um i was telling our next storyteller that oftentimes it just seems like this thankless kind of thing i don't say that to guilt anybody i really don't it just oftentimes like i leave on a story slam night and just kind of like okay, well, I did that, and I'm going to pay out of pocket again for it, and I'm glad that people had a good time. Uh, so, at the end of our season last year, I was really just like, all right, I feel good. I'm going to be done. We're not going to do Story Slam anymore. And then I think in June or July, I think June, our, our next storyteller sent me a message really out of the blue. And when was your first Story Slam? Like February or March? Yeah. Uh, his first Story Slam was March, and he's told a story at every Story Slam he's been at uh, since then. And uh, so he just sent me a message that just said, hey, I, you know, I just really want to encourage you and thank you for doing Story Slam. Um, it's meant a lot to me for a really big reason, um, and I feel like you probably don't get told this a lot, but I just want you to know it It has an impact on people, and it and it means something to people. And then I was like, "Well, shit! Now I gotta do Story Slam." <laughs> no, that's uh, that. Uh, yeah, that's not how I felt. How I really felt was great. I get to do Story Slam, and, like, and I was really excited and like reinvigorated, and like to know that it like does something for people. This does something for me, but I guess I just fell into this like trap of like thinking like I'm the only one getting something out of this. And and I just thought what I'm getting isn't worth the headache anymore. Um, but so our next storyteller, his name is Bradley Glassell, and uh, he really, really impacted me um, with that message, and just told me that, just made me learn like it is worth the headache because it's not just about me, it's about you guys, it's about our audience, it's about our storytellers. So please put your hands together for the man who is the reason that Story Slam is still going, Bradley Glassell.
4: I grew up Catholic, too, so I know guilt. And I have notes, so. (laughs) All right, so anyways, my story, again, kind of what leads into what I told Adam. Um, So back in February, I had your standard physical, you know, went for the physical. And, you know, when I have physicals, one of the things I had complained to my wife about is you go for physicals, and nowadays, you know, physicals are paid for. The basic physical is paid for. But doctors have a tendency to run all these other tests. And you have to pay for these tests. So, you know, I was complaining to my wife, God, you know, you got to pay for all these other tests. Well, uh, a couple days later, a doctor calls up and he says, you know, hey, come on in. I want to talk to you about something. And I'm thinking, you know, he wants to talk about how the Packers are going to draft next week or something like that. And he says, you know, your PSA rating came in really high. Uh, PSA is prostate, what it measures for prostate cancer. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, all right, sounds good. And, you know, if anybody ever looks into this in men, it's kind of a notoriously unreliable rating. So I'm like, oh, okay, no big deal. You know, PSA rating high, big deal. So he says, I want you to see a urologist. So I go see the urologist, same thing. He says, your rating is really high and all that. And he says, well, you know, I want to do a biopsy. I'm like, oh, well, sounds like kind of a big thing, but yeah, yeah, that's all right. And he says, okay, so we schedule a biopsy. And he says, you know, go on home. And on the way out the door, he says, hey, by the way, uh, I want to give you this book. And so he hands me this book, and it is a uh, 100 Questions and Answers About Prostate Cancer. So I'm like, um, gee, yeah, and by the way, obviously you're kind of getting the idea this might be a little bit of a heavy subject, but there is funny things about everything. So this is a laughing emoji, so I'm giving you the permission to laugh. So, okay? So, one of my props here. So, I, I'm like, you know, I get home and I'm talking to my wife and I said, you know, hey, you know, I met with a doctor and he gave me this this book here. And I'm like, I don't think doctors just give you a book about cancer unless, you know, they think something. So, yeah, you know, it goes on. And, and so, I, of course, I go back and I have the um, biopsy done. All right, so for the men in the audience who have been through prostate exams, so now I'm on my third appointment, and I think you kind of know what I'm leading up to here, and I'm not going to give you the gory details, but at that point, my standard line from there on is, I've had enough anal probing without meeting an alien. So, yeah. (laughs) So, um... Get called back in about a week later, and yeah, sure enough, I've got prostate cancer, you know, and that kind of you know hits you a little bit, kind of rocks it and stuff like that. So, but hey, you continue on. So we uh, we go ahead and we meet and with the uh, urologists and radiologists and things like that, and start looking at what treatment is. And start getting that set up and what we're going to do. And we have some choices and you have a little bit of time and all this kind of stuff. So go ahead and go through the process. Well, the first treatment is uh, hormone therapy. Geez, somebody just actually talked about that a little bit ago. And so uh, what that does and, uh, is cuts off your testosterone. So, And in this case, it has some side effects. You know, and I'm not going to tell you all the side effects, but like say one of them is hot flashes. So anybody, women who have gone through menopause or that hot flashes, which is a pretty crazy thing, because multiple times through the day you'll be standing or talking to somebody, and all of a sudden sweat will start like running down your face, and you know all that kind of stuff. So that's that's one of them. Um, memory loss is another one. By the way, that's why I keep looking at those. <laughs> So, um, and then another one is weight gain. Now, in case you haven't noticed, I'm not at my ideal weight. Um, so, I have to get the frickin' cancer that you gain weight on. I mean, seriously, you know, so... So, yeah, we continue on, continue on. And, and, you know, again, during these times, you know, all these different things come to mind and, and all that. And uh, you, you kind of search for different things. And, and we have a very eclectic, decorated apartment. And one of the things we did in our apartment is we painted on a wall, chalk paint. And so every once in a while, we'd come up, one of us erase it, and write lyrics. Our thing is to write lyrics to songs. So has anybody ever heard uh, the song Long December by Counting Crows? Yeah. It's really a nice song. I think the album really sucked, I guess, from what I understand. But that was kind of a hit on that. And that one struck me. And um, I'm going to do you an enormous favor right now because I'm not going to sing. So... <laughs> Because that would be horrific. And uh, so just some of the lyrics to it starts out, uh, it's a long December, and maybe next year will be better than the last. But uh, part of it is there is uh, the smell of hospitals in winter and the feeling that there's, there's a lot of oysters but no pearls. But then all at once, you look across the room and see the way that light reflects off of a girl. So what I took out of that is you're going to have all these times of despair, but then something pops up, and it gives you hope, and it turns you around. So it's one of those things that I kind of tried to grab onto it. So we go on, continue on, and uh, the next... Therapy is called uh, external beam radiation. Really interesting thing. It's interesting how high-tech cancer... treatments have gotten so basically i would go and you'd lay on a table and this big huge machine rotates around and what it does is it shoots radiation into you and it is so exact that it's within a millimeter and so i would go every day five days a week and have this done hitting nine spots and so on and so forth and so that's the next thing so this incredibly high-tech machine and what i would do is every day i'd go there and I would go into a room, and I'd change it to a hospital gown, and then I'd go out in kind of a public area and sit around in a hospital gown. And I'm like, so we have this extremely high-tech machine, but nobody can figure out anything better than a hospital gown to be walking around in, you know? It's like one of these dignity-type things, you know? So kind of crazy that way. So I'm sorry, i got to... Um, so um, another thing about having cancer is that it's, it's always really hard to figure out how you're going to be public on it, you know, like you talked about, how, how you're going to communicate this, what you're going to do, and obviously you tell your friends, you tell your uh, relatives, all that kind of stuff. And one of the interesting things to me that kind of happens with it is that people come up to you, oh, you know, I heard about it, I'm really sorry, and what can I do to help, you know? And the thing is, there's really nothing that people can do to help, or not much that they can do to help, you know? It's really kind of one of these things. So I have this other friend, a really, really good friend of mine, who last year went through very serious heart condition, almost died, went through that. And we get together a lot, and we were sitting around talking about it, and we were talking about this kind of phenomenon, and, you know, and people are just really trying to be nice. They're just really trying to be good and everything that way. And so we came up with this thing of what to do is, so somebody comes up, and they say, said, you know, sorry, and all that, what can I do to help? And you'd say, well, you know, $100 wouldn't hurt. <laughs> <You know>? So, <laughs> but I, I actually never really did that, so. <laughs> but I'd like to try it later, because you never know, it might stick. Somebody might actually do it. So, so we continue on, and, and the next thing is, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm backing up a little bit. But um, during all of this, uh, my wife and I start binge watching Breaking Bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If anybody hasn't ever seen Breaking Bad, the plot is that a school teacher gets cancer, and so to make money, he starts cooking meth in an RV. Well, I got cancer and I have an RV. <laughs> so, well, I decided not to do that, but...
3: <laughs> yeah.
4: All I want to say is, we're not in danger. I am the danger. So you Breaking Bad fans will get that one. So... So, um, and and the last thing is last Wednesday I had a a bone biopsy to see if there's any spread of that. So that's kind of hopefully the last thing. We've got to wait about a week or two for that to come back. And so kind of hopeful and maybe I'll be able to kind of start moving on with this. So uh, as Adam said... Uh, I was uh, diagnosed with this. This all started in February and a few weeks after that um, heard about Story Slam and decided to do it and it it was very cathartic for me to get up here. I'd never done anything like this before. I'd never been up on a stage, maybe some you know a little bit of speaking at work type stuff but never did it and it's frightening as hell, um, very exhilarating, and, and really a lot of fun for it. So uh, so like I say, I sent the email to Adam saying, you know, I've been diagnosed with cancer, and, and it was really great for me to do it, so it was really uh, fabulous for me to guilt him into that. But... Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, to me, this is really something really, really cool because, again, Moth Radio, you know, it's, it's, a, it's more, I don't know, professional or something like that, and this is so informal and, and it's really great for people to have the experience to do it or really just to be in the audience and listen to it. So it, let's please give Adam a big, big, huge round of applause. So, so yes. So... Uh, So then in in closing um, All at once You look across the room And you see the way That light attracts To a girl So Thank you
0: Thanks Bradley That means a lot Uh, I don't have anything else to say. So our next storyteller is Minnie Miskamin.
5: Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my my Iron Man costume came from. Uh, 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 a raff not a raffle, a, a scavenger hunt that I did this summer. So I had it anyway, and my niece did the makeup in 20 minutes. Let's give it up for Abby. So my adventure came after I had been in a play with a friend. And, you know, you get done with the play, and there's, there's all that drama that you've just lived through, and you want to keep the drama going. And and one of my co co you know actors she said okay let's do this i've seen i saw a flyer let's walk on fire and i thought uh, okay i mean people have done it for centuries i don't know how the flyer did not give any clues as to how it's done but it can be done so i thought I'll give it a try and we went and there were all these really interesting like cleansing rituals like saging ourselves top to bottom back front under everywhere and and then making this power object that would signify your essence that is that, that would carry you across the fire and, or the you know, be the strength that you bring to that day's events. And then we started building the fire all together and played with the fire. Part of it was that we got comfortable with the fire. Like we would have big torches that we would play with, you know. And then you'd, you'd, you'd have fire on either side of you and you're surrounded by fire and it's beautiful and it's not scary. And you become more comfortable with fire. And so I really did. And I, but I didn't go first. I watched some other people do it. Just to make sure it was going to actually happen. And that we were, weren't going to burn their feet. And all these people just went right across the coals. Really fast. And without incident. And I thought, okay, well, when my time comes, I'm going to savor it. <laughs> so I was walking on the fire, and I thought, I'm going to be fine, because I've got all these, I've got calluses. I walked, you know, I walked barefoot all my life in the summertime. And, okay, I'm going to take off my shoe, because, okay, ugh, I've got stubby little toes... As you can see <laughs> but I could see the fire, the orange glow in between my toes. <laughs> I'd never seen that before and I wa- and I, so I was slowing down looking at the at the fire between my toes. And thank God I had a really good You know, whoever this person was who who put this on, she gently reminded me, this is not a fire stand. (laughs) This is a fire walk. And so I did. I completed it with no burns whatsoever. And I would do it again if I could find anyone to do it with me. (laughs)
0: I can't, uh, anytime I hear about firewalking, I can't help but think about The Office and Pam. So, I just totally blanked on who our next storyteller is. Got it. Uh, our, <laughs> our next storyteller is a guy who oftentimes breaks the rules and throws things from the stage. So, please put your hands together for Marty the Meatman Man Soznowski.
6: Thanks, Adam. Adam, don't you dare quit doing this. I'm telling you right now. This, you know this is kind of therapy for us older folks. At least I feel that way. And usually before I start my stories, I come up here and usually give Adam a little bit of credit, and I try to get people to support this because we do need this. But tonight, before I start my story, I want to talk a little bit about the people that come to listen. Because really, without you guys, well, I mean, who are we going to tell our stories to? Without, Especially the people that come to listen that don't tell stories. You guys come up here and listen to this crazy crap that we tell, and you seem to enjoy it. And when I first started out on this adventure of, of storytelling, something I never took into consideration is that you might even actually have a fan. And I actually did have a fan. My very first fan was Brian Hamung, who I found out last time when I was here... He was moving to Houston, and so I was really sad because this guy was my first friend, my first fan, real fan. He used to come and bring people to see me tell stories, and that was so awesome. I never expected that. So I was driving home last time, and I'm going, I'm really sad, because he's moving to Houston. He's not going to be here anymore. So I got home, and I thought, well, I'll put on some Black Sabbath and smoke some weed. And that worked. That worked really good, just like it usually does, back to my positive self. And then I went, wait a minute. This isn't a sad thing, because Brian's moving to Houston. And I know as soon as he gets the podcast, he's going to play this for people in Houston. So we have to welcome all our new fans from Houston. (laughs) Because I know they're going to hear this, and I have, and, and tonight I have this great story for these fans from Houston. This is an adventure, a Halloween adventure, so it's a Halloween story. This is a Halloween adventure to pull off the greatest, the greatest Halloween prank ever pulled, without someone getting killed. Now, it includes blood, it includes ambulances, it includes police, but no one got killed. So this is how it goes. This this starts out when I was... I'm 10 years old, 5th grade. The powers that be in the universe brought together. Myself, Little Meat Man. My friend Danny Dahl. One other thing in my stories is names do not get changed to protect the innocent. It can't be because... Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to give you all the facts to write down to see if you guys want to go see if this is true. I've heard this called folklore, I've heard this called an urban legend, but it happened. So, fifth grade, Danny Dahl, my neighbor, and our friend Howard Humbleson, who is the important person in this story, we all end up in fifth grade together in the same class, Mr. Ritchie's class, Bloomington, Minnesota, 1967. Now back in the 60s, I know all that you millennials get tired of hearing this, but it was a different time. On Halloween, we didn't even leave the house till it got dark. We didn't have our parents tagging along with us or an adult. They just were sent us out. And we're living in Minneapolis and Bloomington in the suburbs, and there's thousands of houses, and you can just go get bags of candy. And so it was awesome back then. I mean, we went out; we were out, out till all nights, of, all hours of the night, even at that age. So we decide that we're going to come up with the greatest Halloween prank ever. So here's what we did: Plan A. We get my friend Danny. His mom was in retail in fashion, and she wore wigs. So she had some mannequins and and, uh, wigs at her house. So we get a mannequin body and some wigs, and we make a a dummy that looks pretty damn realistic. So what we're going to do is we're going to take this dummy out on the sidewalk, and we're going to pretend like we're beating it up, and we're going to smash it down. And when the kids come by, they're going to be really scared. We're 10 years old. Seems like a pretty good plan. We do it no reaction. The kids just come by and look at it and go, that's pretty stupid. So then plan B, I said, well, I'm going to run home and get a bottle of ketchup and we'll bloody it up. we will beat it up and we'll bloody it up and we'll lay down there and that'll really scare them. Plan B, failure. Doesn't work. Some kid comes by with a French fry and goes, it's just ketchup. <laughs> that doesn't work either. So we're really disappointed. And so this is where my friend, now Howard was one of these kind of kids where You know, they say there's a fine line between genius and insanity. And Howard tended to go a little bit over to the insanity side. But I really think this guy was a genius because I don't know how a 10-year-old came up with this idea. But so Howard goes, well, let's take the dummy and put it in the road. And we'll let a car run over it. And then the kids will really be scared. So, okay, so that sounds like a pretty plausible thing to do at first. So we, it's a, And this is a road similar to Washington down here. Pretty busy, you know. Speed limit's probably about 35, 40, four lanes across. This is in Minneapolis. So we go, we put the dummy in the road. Not working. Cars see it, you know, they're going drive. They're going around it. They're looking at it, going, well, this is something. You know, and they're going, oh, this isn't working. So Howard notices that in the road, there's a big dip in the road, a little bit down the road across from the park. Down the road we go, we put the dummy on the far lane, in just down the other side of the dip, and then there's no cars coming yet, so one of us got the bright idea of, let's steal a bag of candy from a kid. So honest to God, the first kid that walks by, we steal his bag of candy. <laughs> and we take it, and we put it out, and we set it right on the chest of this dummy, and then we go hide in the shrubs, and we're waiting and here a couple cars come by and that's because they didn't they were on the wrong lane and they went by and pretty soon here comes our victim. And this is 1967. We're truck there's no little Honda cars back then. These are all big Detroit iron. Station wagons with wood on the side and ladies with big hair smoking cigarettes. Everybody smoked cigarettes then. So here comes our victim down the road, cruising along, it's Halloween, it's dark, it's probably ten or eleven at night. Over the hill she comes and she nails this dummy going about four. She never saw it. Wham! She, and I'm not kidding you, the candy was genius. Cause the candy just went flying. It went everywhere. Candy was stuck in her fucking windshield wipers, stuck in her grill. I'm not kidding you. She hits this dummy and she go, she immediately slams on the brakes, skids across the, almost hits another car coming head on. Uh, up into these people's yard and slams into a fucking tree and i mean hits this fucking tree and and we're just sitting there going like who oh, didn't see that coming you know oh. Shit! What are we gonna do? And I'm not kidding you. So uh, some cars are, are start, They're slowing down the road because there's fucking parts all over from this dummy and candy and shit. And they're looking and they're they're going like, well, it's, you know, it's not a real kid. And they take off and more cars are. And this lady gets out of the car. And I'm not kidding you. It's just like it's just like Nancy Kerrigan at the Olympics. She gets she got blood running down her face. She gets out of her car. She's on her knees. She's going, why is nobody stopping? I just hit that kid in the road. And people are coming out of the house to help her out and stuff. And she's just sitting there. And my friend Howard runs out into the road. He grabs the dummy. And he goes, lady, it's just a dummy. And if that ain't the greatest Halloween prank that was ever pulled, I don't know what is. And I thank all you listeners.
0: Thanks, Marty. Thank you for not throwing meat from the stage. <laughs> um, who hasn't done dumb things at Halloween as a child? I, uh, I was a good kid, uh, mostly. I was a pastor's kid. I am a pastor's kid, I should say. My dad's not dead yet. and um, He's also not here tonight, so I can say whatever I want. Uh, but I had a neighbor named Ben, and uh, Ben was very hyper. Uh, he he was diagnosed with ADHD, and uh, he liked trouble, and I liked Ben. So, uh, you know, to just math, I liked trouble too. And I'll never forget uh, one time Ben... After Halloween, convinced me we should smash our pumpkins. Because has anybody had their pumpkins smashed by a a 'er (laughs) ne'er-do-well? I just said 'er ne'er-do-well. Well, Uh, well, the year before, somebody had smashed our pumpkins. And then, like, that year, we were like, we're going to smash our own pumpkins. We're going to beat them to it. And I was, like, all for it. And I just thought, like, on our own porches. And... Uh, He said, no, we're not going to do it on our own porches. (laughs) So we had this neighbor named Jack, and uh, Jack is the most anal retentive man I've ever met about his lawn and his house, and like uh, he mows it like every day. It's just ridiculous. And uh, so we took our pumpkins over to Jack's house, and he had this beautiful Cadillac uh, in his driveway. And we smashed our pumpkins and then wiped the pieces all over his Cadillac <laughs> all over his garage, and then we threw the pieces on his roof <laughs> yeah, it's like a the finishing touch <laughs> and uh like the the next day that that was at night obviously, and growing up, Jack meant the world to me because like my uh my Brother and sister would go off to school, and I was four or five and not in kindergarten yet. And uh, Jack's like a dick to like, adult neighbors, but to kids, he's like the coolest guy in the world because he's got all these tools. He used to be a race car driver. And when, when I was a, a little boy, four or five years old, he would let me come over and help him like, tinker around on his uh, lawnmower. And he'd be like, you know, grab me this tool, and I'd be like, well, I don't know what that is. And he taught me a lot of stuff about tools. He was really awesome. And um, so the next day, like, we were walking through the neighborhood, me and Ben. And Jack's (laughs) cleaning his car and his garage and his roof. And uh, uh, we walked by, and he's like, hey, boys, come on up here. And so we walked up, and he's like, yeah, somebody... uh Somebody smashed some pumpkins on my car and, and wiped it all over the garage and stuff and threw it on my roof, and I'm pretty pissed off about it. I'm like, "Oh yeah, that sucks, man." And he's like he's like, "Do you know anything about it?" And I'm like, "No, no way, we don't know anything about it." You know, it's one of those moments where you know you're caught. Like, (laughs) why would he be talking to us about it? So, like, Ben went home, and I went to my parents. And this is the kind of kid I was. I went to my house and went to my parents. and was like, I did this thing. (laughs) And told them immediately. And uh, I had to write Jack, like, this letter that was like, I'm so sorry. And, like, I included some of my Halloween candy in there. (laughs) Because when you're a kid, you're like, that's the most important thing. This is how I pay you back. And to this day, Jack loves me. And he's like, but that Ben kid, he's a little (laughs) shithead. He didn't apologize. Because he's like, I know boys will be boys, Donald Trump. And, uh... (laughs) No, he was like, I know kids will be kids and, like, do stupid things, but at least you you apologized. Okay, so, uh, thank you. Um, <laughs> that sounded so rude. Yeah, okay, great, thanks. Uh, <laughs> our next storyteller actually won at our last Story Slam last month with a great story that I don't remember, but I'm sure it was great. Uh, I was actually telling somebody recently, uh, last night, in fact, they were asking me about all these stories from last month, and I said, here's the thing. Uh, Story Slam is the one night a month that I drink, and so (laughs) it's pretty rare that I remember anything from the previous month. Uh, Nobody laughed at that. Thanks. Uh, (laughs) So our next storyteller, please put your hands
7: together for Stephen Montagna. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Good to be back. Uh um yeah, so I, I did the story thing uh for the first time last time and it was a gas. So it's really great to be back. Sophomore sophomore effort though, so now the pressure's on. Um uh, if you were here last time, I, I explained that I'm an actor. I did my Master of Fine Arts here at the UW, and there was sort of the story as to why I arrived at that point in my life to do that. Uh, I want to talk tonight about sort of what happened after some of my adventures as an actor, one in particular. Uh, I got the MFA not to be an actor. You don't need a degree to be an actor. Most people don't, don't do that. I got it because I wanted to teach, right? Um, and let's just get this out of the way. Madison is a great city. But nobody moves to Madison, Wisconsin to launch an acting career, okay? It just does not happen. Despite this, Madison's got a great active theater community, story community, right? Uh, And as an actor, every once in a while, you do get an opportunity to do professional work, which is to say, you get the luxury of getting paid to do the thing you love, which is a great privilege, I've had this a few times in my life. Uh, Right out of grad school, those of you who remember when the Madison Repertory Theater was still around. Got a few chances to to work with them. But the really interesting times, if you're mostly a stage actor, is when you get to play TV and movie star. Right? One such occasion uh, occurred to me. I want to take you back to the spring of 1997. If you remember back then, there were only four main television networks. This is before Hulu, before YouTube, right, before Netflix. Yeah, we had cable, and they were starting to do their own shows, but it really was those big four. And the the flagship of those four, as far as I'm concerned, was the Fox television network, And the the biggest show Fox had was Cops. Now, Cops was a a live-action, right, documentary-style show. Uh, But it was their biggest hit. And as with many networks, when you get a big hit, you try to recreate it. So they recreated it with real stories of the highway patrol. This was documentary, but they distinguished themselves by having live-action sequences that they shot. Uh, and it was in the spring of 1997 that the crew of Leap Off Productions, which was the company that made this show for Fox, came to Wisconsin to shoot three episodes, or that is the reenactment segments for three episodes. And, uh, I had an agent at the time, which sounds really, really cool to have an agent. (laughs) And, uh... Uh, she happened to be uh, chosen to do the casting for these for all the local talent So uh, I got a chance to read I was seen by producers. They liked me for this one role. I was hired Woo-hoo! Now this is where I just need to paint in for you and i 'm trying not to be uh, uh, i don 't want to to be offensive to anyone just when i 'm generally in a room, large room of people like this uh, i 'll wager that most of you have never actually been in a movie or a TV show. so for a lot of people, finding out you know what it 's like behind the scenes can be sometimes a new thing and, and a lot of people go into this with the preconception that you know anything they see on TV wow, you know. That's, that's glam, that's glitter, that's glitz, you know, you must have been paid a lot. We hear all the stories of movie stars, right, that get paid hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to do this type of thing. Uh, and, and, you know, the sets and the crews, you know, all sorts of creative people come together to make a show happen, to make special effects, to do makeup, to do costume, to do lighting, all of this stuff. Leap Off Productions made their segments by sending four people around the country by plane, uh, just flying coach, like you or I, with a bunch of suitcases. They had some equipment, and everything else they needed they would get on site, including hiring talent, getting locations, etc. This is where the adventure of being an actor met with the reality of, it's not always glamorous, right? Right? my first warning sign should have been that I got a call prior to, uh, the production date, and, uh, it was, uh, one of the production assistants that wanted to talk to me about costume and what I could bring to costume myself. <laughs> now, the role I was playing was the bad guy. It was this little punk kid, teenager, who steals a gun, steals a car, and leads the police on a bit of a chase, okay? All real stories. These all real happened, right? Really happened. Um... And so it it was just by luck at the time I was dating a a woman. who was a few years younger than me, which meant she was hipper than me. She was also a little taller than me, but magically I fit into a pair of really tie-dye and cut-up jeans that she had. And her Lollapalooza (laughs) t-shirt. So it was so adorned with uh, hair down to my shoulders, which I used to be able to do. Those were the days. Uh, That I arrived in Wausau on this April afternoon to shoot this segment. Warning sign number two. So, I needed to, at one point in the segment, uh, I had a gun, right? So I went to the production assistant when I signed in and, you know, was like, well, by the way, supposedly I have a weapon. Is there a weapon I I need to use? Because, you know, if you have a prop as an actor, you want to get your hands on that. You want to hold it, feel it, get used to it so you can get comfortable with it so you're not fumbling with it when you're in front of the camera in front of an audience. Again, Hollywood production, there would have been a master of arms on site would have been probably a fake gun painted to look like a real gun. In this case, it didn't have to be fired, so it didn't need to have blanks or anything like that. But the production assistant was like, oh, yeah, yeah, come with me. Now, on set, we had about six Wisconsin State Patrolmen. Two of these guys were the guys that were in the segment because they actually used the real police officers in their reenactments. The other guys were there because, hey, this is fun and kind of funny to see so-and-so and so-and-so be actors for the day and also to provide, you know, the actual, you know, the sort of police procedure, like accuracy for how things are carried out uh, and for security. Production assistant walks me over to a cop, says, hey, uh, so-and-so, uh, yeah, he needs a gun. Cop says... Okay, walks over to his patrol car, takes his Glock 9mm pistol out of his holster, pulls the clip, empties the clip one bullet at a time, clears the chamber, puts the clip back in, and hands it to me. I am now holding a, a police-issue firearm. The fact that I've just watched him clear it does not make me feel any safer about this. Okay. So we shot the, the, the first segment uh, at a house, which was just a house they had you know, rented for the day or you know paid the people, hey, how'd you like to be on TV, or at least your house will be on TV here, you know, and, and they used it as a movie set. Our second setup was up, uh, uh, up the road a bit on a stretch of Wisconsin Highway in Wausau, and this was the, uh, the chase scene. Now, again, if this were a Hollywood production and you saw a car, and it might have been the most beat-up-looking car because the character isn't rich, doesn't drive a really nice car. If it's Denzel Washington in there, right, who they're paying hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, it may look like a piece of crap, but you can bet that it's been gone over by a mechanic. Its brakes are in full working order. Engine works. Everything, all the safety, right? Now. No. These guys from Leap Off, literally when they arrived in Warsaw, they got off the highway, the first gas station they saw, which also was a repair shop, they go in, they negotiate for a couple hundred bucks for the day to grab that thing sitting over there, we'll take it, we'll gas it up, and we'll return it to you when we're done. It was a Cadillac something or other, circa 1960-something or other. In its heyday, it was power everything, power windows, power locks, power doors, but none of the power stuff worked. This was the hottest day of the year. It was one of those years that actually in Wisconsin, in April, we actually hit the 70s. And I was stuck with a walkie-talkie in a car in where I could not roll down the windows. And you just basically, yeah, Steve, here, take this. Drive about two miles down that way. Just wait. We'll signal you. And when we signal you, turn it on, hit the gas, and just come right down this road. Those are the instructions. Now, if you've ever been on a movie set, the the old adage is "hurry up and wait." You spend a lot of time just waiting for the next shot to be set up. While I was there waiting down in the in this hot box of a car, they're up on the other end of the highway shooting other angles, shooting footage of the police officers. At one point, I got so panicky I started like you know like thinking that the locks were were fixed closed. It was like getting you know closed in like a little rat in a box. Any anyway, rate. I can't complain, because the end-all be-all of this is a couple things. One, I got to see myself on TV, and I got to play movie actor for a day. But best of all, I got to drive down a Wisconsin highway doing 75 miles an hour with a state patrolman behind me with their lights and sirens blaring, and I did not have to stop.
0: All right, up next, we've got Brad Freihofer, So please clap for Brad.
8: Thanks. Okay. Uh, well, I'll start my story. I grew up in Baraboo, Wisconsin, which is, yeah, some of you all know, just south of Wisconsin. Dallas, not too far from Madison. Um mm-hmm. And I graduated high school there. I was in cross-country and track, and uh, I ended up going to Minnesota State University, Mankato, in Mankato, Minnesota, for my undergrad degree in women's studies and philosophy. Uh, I am employed today, so that's good. Um, right, thank you. Um, but running running was always a thing in my life. Uh, I always loved to, to just, many people just don't love to just run, but it was always a thing for me. Um, and so when I went to uh, college and as I, I went and grabbed my first job down in Ames, Iowa, uh, at Iowa State University, I uh, was... I was really like still into running, but I was having some difficulty doing it. Um, I was having like some headaches as I would get done running, which was pretty unusual because I really just enjoyed, uh, doing it. Um, and so I went in, I was about three months into my first full time job in Ames, Iowa. Uh, I was new to the state of Iowa. I didn't know anything about it. Uh, all I knew was corn and soybeans, and that was about it. Uh, so when I got down to my first job, uh, I, w- I got connected in my first weekend there with, uh, A a, a healthcare professional who does basically family practice. Uh, And I was just chatting with him and he's like, oh, do you have a doctor yet uh, in town? And I was like, no, I don't. Uh, He's like, well, I can be your doctor then. And I'm like, okay, that sounds good. Uh, he's like, well, all right, we'll just call my office and uh, we'll schedule you an appointment. Um, And so I did. I called the, the nurse that next week and I set up a, a, a physical with him. And we were going through the physical process, and everything's checking out. I'm, at that time, I'm 23 years old. Uh, I'm in I'm really great shape. I'm feeling pretty good, uh, other than these kind of migraines that have been bothering me. And so he's doing the physical. Uh, he's got me sitting up on the, the table, and uh, I'm a little uncomfortable because I really hate medical situations. I just, I'm not into any of that. It makes my anxiety rise a little bit. I get a little nervous, a little clammy. And so he's noticing I'm getting a little nervous, and he's like, it's fine, we're good, it's just, you know, I'm just going to listen to your chest here for a little bit, and, and just see how your lungs sound, okay, so can you take a few deep breaths? And so I take a few deep breaths, and I relax, and uh, he's he's listening to, to my lungs, and he's listening to my heart, and so what I see is he's got, he's kind of just putting up against my chest, and he's like, hmm, and puts it below him And I'm like, okay. Uh, and he, he steps back for a second. He's like, I want to take one more listen. So he listens again and he's like, Hmm. So he takes off his, the, the little, his little ear, ear things. He puts it down on his chest and he says, you know, I hear a heart murmur. Have you, have you ever, has anyone ever told you that before? And I said, no. Uh, I've been running a lot. Uh, I, I think my... He's like, really, what's your best time in the mile? And I said, I, I run... I think my best time's like around a 440 or a 435. Um, and he's like, oh, that's pretty good. And I was like, yeah, but I... I yeah, it wasn't, it's, it's, it wasn't what I wanted. And he's like, yeah, I can, I can see that. So he's like, well, you've got a little heart murmur, you know, 50% of the time it's usually nothing. So, um, but just, just to make sure, cause this is the first time I've been working with you, we're going to send you over to, to cardiology and just have them run a few tests. Um, and again, I'm 23, I'm in the midst of my first job. Uh, and I'm, I'm like, all right, I guess I don't know when I'm going to take off for that, but okay, like let's do it. So we schedule it. And I go into cardiology, uh, which is on the fourth floor of this beautiful building in in Ames, Iowa. Um, And I meet with my my cardiologist, who's a young guy who just came into Ames, Iowa uh, at the Mary Greeley Medical Center there and uh, McFarland Clinic System there. And he says, uh, he's like, nice to meet you. And I'm like, I walk in and I'm clearly the youngest person by. I don't know. 40 years. Like I, I am like clearly surrounded by folks who are significantly older than I am. And everyone looks at me when I walk in, like, what are you doing here? Um, I'm in the cardiology wing. So, you know, folks who are are there are usually recovering from a variety of heart related issues that they're having, usually maybe older later in life. So I walk in and it's clearly a spectacle a little bit. Uh, So even the nursing staff's like, huh? Uh, And so I walk in, I meet with my cardiologist. He's like, all right, we're going to run a few tests on you. We're going to do an echocardiogram and we're going to, we're going to take a look at your heart just through an echo. We're going to do a a little bit of a ultrasound on you. So I'm like, Ooh, okay. I'm a little nervous, but they, I'm like, there's no, like, I'm not, I'm not going to have like any needle pricks, am I? And they're like, he's like, no, you're good. Calm down. You'll be fine. Uh, these are non-invasive. I was like, okay, great. So they do the echocardiogram. And if you've never had um, either an echo or a, an ultrasound, what they do is I've got to lay on this table, and they, they drop the table below you. It's, a, it's like a magic trick. It kind of just drops below you. They put all this really uncomfortable liquid on you, and they're just listening to my heart, but they're having me do different things to stress my heart a little bit just so they can see what happens. So they do all the tests. I see the, the individual with the tech who's helping me with my procedure. She's looking at the screen, and they freeze-frame the screenshots that they can give to the doctor so that they can see uh, what the scoop is. Uh, so she's, she's very quiet, and I'm a little bit of a talker when I'm in medical situations because I'm nervous, and I just want someone to distract me from the reality of what we're doing. And so I was really nervous, and I'm just like, hey, let's talk about anything, the weather. I don't care. Tell me something. And she's a little quiet. And so I said, how does it look? And she doesn't really say anything. So I'm like, oh, okay. Um, so we get done. It's actually a pretty quick procedure. Um, and then I wait about Frankly, it's, it's not very long at all. I end up going back into the room to meet with my cardiologist. Uh, he comes in, and this guy is a very handsome uh, individual. He comes in, and I literally just saw him maybe 20, 25 minutes before, so I you know, know what he looks like. But when he came back in, his face was significantly white. It was much more pale than it was earlier. And I said oh, okay, uh, I got a little more nervous. He's like, so we looked at your results. We're a little concerned, uh, so let me show you what I'm seeing. And so he puts up on the map, he says, all right, so here's, here's your heart. And if you think of your heart like an apple, all right, and if everyone's heart's an apple, the core of most people's hearts is about 10, uh, what do you say, 10 millimeters thick, we did some tests on yours, so I'm going to show you yours now. And he puts mine up, and I'm looking at my own heart, and I, which is, by the way, weird. And I look at it, and I'm like, oh, clearly I, I don't even have to be a doctor to notice something is not quite right. Um, my heart looks to be, my core looks to be about three times larger than that. Um, which in this case is, is an area of concern where we look at immediate surgery. And so the doctor looks at me and says, I think we're going to have to get you up to the Mayo Clinic up in Rochester, Minnesota. And I think we're going to have to go sooner rather than later. Uh, And I said, okay. So in this moment, I'm 23 years old. I just started my first job. Uh, And now I'm looking. I used to do running all the time. Uh, I was an athlete. And I'm having this moment of... uh, my doctor sitting down and say, you have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It's called HCM. When people have heart attacks on the field of play, they have those little you know, paddles now that they take out on the field. The disease you have is one of the reasons why we have them. And how you've gotten this far, actually, is quite amazing, considering your running and your activity. You're very, very lucky. And so I learned for the first time that I have a genetic heart disease. And so we go up to Mayo Clinic. My family joins me after I tell them the news. Um, and we're a little nervous. If you haven't been to Mayo Clinic, it's quite large, uh, and it can be a little intimidating. So we go up and we do some further tests. And it's clear upon the further tests, because Mayo has some excellent, uh, excellent resources at their disposal. When they put up my results again, they see that it's not as bad. So instead of 33 millimeters, it's actually about 26 which is still not great, uh, but it 's okay. My parents and my mom there 's a picture of us all sitting down on the on the bench right after we get the news about the twenty six millimeters. My mom looks just like she saw. Uh, a ghost. She just looks terribly concerned. Uh, my dad's sitting next to her. My dad looks a little like George Costanza from Seinfeld. Uh, so if you need a visual image, there you go. Uh, he acts like him too, so it's kind of just all synced. Uh, so he's kind of grinning a little bit to try to keep the mood light. The doctor and I have a conversation uh, and we talk about whether surgery is going to be needed. Uh, and in this space, uh, we, we begin to explore uh, the surgery options. And he says, Well, we can put in a pacemaker and defibrillator for you. uh, And it's a safety net. In case you go hiking, in case you do anything, you'll have something there to protect you. And I said, Okay. He said, You can either have it done here or you can have it done in Ames. Uh, He's like, Your cardiologist in Ames is amazing. I actually would probably recommend you do that there. Uh, And so we end up going in for what would be one of my first of many heart surgeries uh, in Ames, Iowa, at the age of 23. Uh, where a few years ago I was running for 40 miles. Uh, I am no longer able to do that. And so tonight we were talking about what adventures are. And uh, last time I spoke at a story slam, I talked about another medical adventure I have, uh, and this is another. Um, whether you have heart surgeries, and there were many moments throughout this journey where I thought uh, I wasn't going to make it, or I thought this can, I seriously cannot keep having all these medical challenges and still find success. And it was really this year, uh, after about eight years now, I've had my pacemaker and defibrillator, something most people never acknowledge or notice on my body as I navigate the world, that um, survival and going on adventures are not always chosen, but if your perspective and you look at life uh, in a really optimistic way, if you look at it and say, well, every challenge or adventure um, can really sometimes have some positive outcomes, it can slow you down, but it can also give you a new purpose in life. That's exactly what mine did. And so um, I think this journey, although it's been difficult and challenging, uh, has had some beautiful outcomes. Uh, I was able to reconnect with the love of my life uh, and start a new chapter, uh, regardless of my medical challenges, to take a new step forward. Thanks.
0: Our next storyteller uh, is probably going to win the costume contest, I gotta say. He's dressed as one of my favorite characters of all time from my favorite movie of all time. Uh, uh, Please give a a rousing round of applause to Zachary Shea.
9: I feel bad now that I didn't bring up the plant because I need two hands. <laughs> there is a plant, uh, actually. Before I tell this one, just because it's sort of been sort of, I feel like Adam appreciation has been a theme of the night, <laughs> and I'll plug the CD for you in here. It, it just has it's sort of a a prologue to why I picked this story to tell, and I'm not. For people who've heard me tell these stories, I'm not... I, I connect with people with humor. I don't really do the... And then this thing happened to me and it changed my life. Just because I'm bad at talking about those kinds of things. Uh, but about a year ago, it'll be a year come November 1st, I moved here to Madison. And I didn't know anyone. I didn't even know Madison was a place. And because I signed that little paper, I moved here because I was recruited by a company who will go unnamed... <laughs> which has a bit of a reputation for hours, and people working a lot of them, and I'm a creative guy, and ever since I started working there, writing a page a day has gone down to at least writing a sentence a day. Um, So getting to come here and be creative once a month really does mean a lot. It's incredible, and I met a lot of great people who I now meet with once a week, and we write, stories, and we were going on an adventure, actually, once, and we put the best of CD in. Uh, and one of the people in this group, uh, she's not here tonight, but she usually is, her name is Mel, uh, is listening with us, and she turns to the rest of the people in the car, and she goes, Adam really likes poop stories. <laughs> there are a lot of stories on the CD about Poop. So, armed with that knowledge, I can say I think with a bit of confidence that this story is dedicated to that love of poop stories. Uh, I was in the Boy Scouts, surprise. Um, I'm a dork, it makes sense, I kept the Eagle Scout card in my wallet for a long time. Uh, And part of the reason I stayed with the Boy Scouts for as long as I did is because they have this thing, uh, this sort of concept uh, of high adventure, uh, which is not exclusive to the Boy Scouts. Uh, There are also venture crews, which are a bit different. They go till 21. Uh, Boys and girls are welcome to join and... Uh, also, Girl Scout groups can technically go on these high adventure trips, too. They're sort of extreme camping, longer trips to the outskirts of wherever. Uh, and you can't do them until you're 14. So I stuck with Boy Scouts till at least I was 14 so I could sign up to do one. And because it's a big effort, we all had to get together and we decided we were going to go on a canoeing trip to Alaska. And it was absolutely beautiful and stunning, and I can't recommend that state enough. We flew up uh, to Fairbanks, and we get there, and before the, we start the trip, we have to drive out another 150 miles. In the middle of nowhere, there are signs saying, you know, next gas station, 80, 90, 100 miles. Um so we have to sit down before we go on that trip and figure out the rules. And the guy's telling us all these things. He's He clearly loves when us people from civilization come up to Alaska, because he's like, just take your watch and throw it out. That sun ain't going down, and you ain't going to know what time it is. Don't worry about the bears. You can't handle one of our squirrels. <laughs> Stuff like this. And he's... He gets to the end of his speech and he goes, by the way, we are a carry-in, carry-out, do-not-disturb organization, which means we will keep and carry everything in and out, which means you're going to need one of these. And he pulls out a, one of those five-gallon paint buckets, and it has the words honey bucket written on it. And this is where we will be pooping, and we will be carrying it with us for ten days. So, the very first day, my father, by the way, who is on this trip, is a genius. He's like, he volunteers first to carry the honey bucket because he knows. (laughs) And we... We get out there to the middle of nowhere, and again, it is beautiful, and we're canoeing, and it's lovely and true enough. The sun is not going down, so already we're starting to get a bit loopy. We're having trouble sleeping, and we're getting up the next day, and everyone's talking about like, oh, using, you know, using the honey bucket was awful. I got up in the middle of the night, and I had to go. I I got up and did this, and I had to go, and I'm going. Yeah, it was the worst. I had decided that I was not going to poop this week. <laughs> Confidently decided. I was like, I can do that. <laughs> I'm 14. I'm not at a point in my life where like I know my own schedule. And like I feel like I'm that invincible. I'm like, I don't have to. I choose to. so first day goes fine I am 14 you know I can I can manage that and the second day I start to notice something my dad again is a genius notices it a little before me and he speaks up and he goes what's going on yesterday the food was great now it's shit (laughs) because we're eating these terrible freeze-dried meals but the last one, first one wasn't bad. And the guy tells us, well, the nicer ones are more expensive. So we wait until you can't change your mind and you have to eat the food we have, and then we start dishing out the crap. So my bowels have started making noises. Um, it, it, it's not clearly audible, but it sounds a bit like my guts are going, like, <laughs> but I'm like I can do this. It's fine. You know, eventually I will just get used to it and now I'll, I'll manage. Day 3 and I really enjoy sitting down. Because the moment I stand up everything becomes a clear pathway. And my body tries to revolt against me. It's like, we're going now, right? And I'm like, getting up carefully. I'm not doing anything. But I still think, I can do this. I can make it. Day four, other things are starting to get a little weird. Like, I we have to eat everything too that's the other thing i can't just like eat less because we have to carry everything and carry everything out so and obviously because one bucket is getting heavier the other one has to get lighter like so i'm 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 sunburned also completely i often joke that i'm the like, this is what W.B. Mason uses as a color reference for printer paper. They're like, make it like that! <laughs> so, I'm, my ears have swelled up to about like twice their normal size. I'm still having a lot of fun. I'm just terribly burnt, and my bowels are slowly planning to kill the rest of me. And day five, we have chili... So everyone goes, and I am still holding it. And because everyone has gone because of chilly day, on day six, our guide gets up and says, the honey bucket is full, we have to clean it out. So they clean it out, and I see my chance. And the moment he says... All right, it's clean. Who wants to put it away? My hand shoots up, but my dad, like a bastard, has already taken it. And I am just, like, waiting for him to be done because he's using it. I know he's using it because he's a bastard like that. And it had just rained, so there's... Alaska is beautiful. And there's this beautiful, stunning rainbow going down to where my dad has taken the honey bucket. Like, God is like, do it! (laughs) So I go. And and it's not great. I mean, after six days, it it was more of a relief than it was anything else. And I get out, and the first thought in my head was, all right... I can go six more days.
0: Thanks, Zachary. Uh, Our next storyteller is one of the youngest storytellers we've ever had at Madison Story Slam. She's 14. Her name is Avery. Please clap for Avery
10: Thompson. Thank you. This is very scary for me. I love performing, being judged is terrifying. I should know I'm a high schooler, Uh, (laughs) but so this is a story. This is more of a disaster than an adventure. Um, I, every summer, I go to a church camp, and over the course of, it's like a week, and over the course of the week, we play a bunch of games, we go swimming, we listen to sermons and stuff, and it's very fun, I get to hang out with my friends. And at the end of the week, we play a game called Romans and Christians, which everyone is always super excited for, because you get to run around in the dark. (laughs) So it's a game where all of the campers get inside their darkest clothing and just try to find this underground church, which is like a campfire or a lantern or something. Once you get there, you never want to leave because it's terrifying outside. And so, all the counselors are the Romans, and they try to find you, and they get flashlights. So, I'm with my two friends, Bella and Bronte, and we're just a team of three. We can do this. We're 12. We're brave. Um, but so, we go out there inside the pitch black, and we're like, we can do this. It's not scary. And we're walking around forever, and we can't find anything. And eventually, we see flashlights ahead of us, and we're like, oh no, Romans are here. So... We go into, like, the forested area nearby, and we, like, walk off the path and get down as low as we can so that we can hide so they won't see us. And we lay there for a really long time until my friend Bella says, I think something's crawling on me. (laughs) And eventually we just keep laying there because we don't want to get caught because it's the worst thing that could happen. And (laughs) eventually we get up once we think the flashlights have passed, and we walk out. And Bella says, I think something just bit me. And then something keeps biting her. And we're like, oh no, what do we do? Something got on her inside of there. And we decide, okay, we have to call for help. So we start yelling at the top of our lungs for people to come help us. And eventually some counselors come. They show their flashlights on her. And there are ants all over her clothes and on her skin. (laughs) And... She's being bitten by them, and me and Bronte are like, oh no, are they on us too? We weren't worried about her at all. (laughs) So we're all freaking out, and we start rushing back to our cabin so that we can change clothes. Hopefully we have more dark clothes, because we're not giving up. We're going to find that church. (laughs) We change out of our clothes, and it's already super late by that point, but we can still make it. And we get on the path again, and someone has told us where the church is. And we're like, okay, we can do this. (laughs) And we're walking down the path. We're so very close. And we see flashlights again. We're like, we're not going back into the forest. So Bella, a genius that she is, decides, let's just lay down on the ground (laughs) in the middle of the path. (laughs) And... We're supposed to be mud or something. I don't know. As soon as they see us, they understand that we're people. And (laughs) we get up, and we have to go with them, and we're going to go to jail. And the way that you can escape going to jail is if you talk to the people who captured you and try to use what you learned in the sermons to convert them to Christianity and stuff. (laughs) And so (laughs) everyone is very tired. And... I'm the only one who has the guts to talk to them. And I'm trying my very best, but I'm so tired. And I was barely paying attention to the sermon. Sorry. But, um, <laughs> and then Bella says to try to help out as best she can. Genius she is. And she says, you know, all those bad things we do. Well, Jesus helps us with those. <laughs> and the people catch us just say, do you guys just want to go? And we're like, Thank you. <laughs> So we get out of there, we make it to the church, and we're sitting down, and there's a lantern, and I'm not leaving anytime soon. And I just think to myself, now I have a great story to tell, and I hope with all of my heart that this never happens again. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks, Avery. I played that game as an eighth grader. We just called it Underground Church. It was, I went to a Christian high school, or school, K through 12. And uh, we just used that as an excuse to just like, make out with girls in the dark. <laughs> That's what we did. Uh, our next storyteller and our last storyteller is Avery's dad. His name is Keith,
2: so give it up for Keith Thompson. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, Like Adam, I grew up in a household that had one good friend who was the seriously bad influence. This was the guy who would, you would stay at his house, he would wake up in the morning and say, what do you say we just make pipe bombs and blow up mailboxes? And you're like nine, and you're thinking, well, no, how about we just find fireworks and shoot at your sister? So... He had um, amazing ideas, but the energy was always in the wrong direction. My job in this relationship was to be the person they could rely on, to be the person who could, at the right moment, scream the words, Run, you idiots! Run now! That was my only task. I was staying with him. This was the end of the 1980s. For whatever reason, he was a huge fan of George Michael and the band Wham! I don't know if we have any Wham or George Michael fans, but he had the haircut, he had the aviator sunglasses, he had the leather BSA jacket, with the jeans with the rip in the knee, the whole bit. And when he showed up at 8 a.m. dressed in full George Michael regalia, you knew something was going to happen, and so you asked, what's going on? And he smiles and says, I got a plan. We're going to a concert tonight. George Michael is playing at the Palace at Auburn Hills outside of Detroit. We're going. And I'm like, okay, it's a sold-out show. I've heard about it on the radio. I have no interest in George Michael whatsoever. But I see your costume. I see you're committed. I'm with you. What's happening? He goes, here's how it's going to go down. At 6 p.m. tonight in Detroit, in Greektown, a monkey is going to appear if we find this monkey and give this monkey a banana, we're going to get two tickets. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to get a group of people. We're going to get bananas. We're going to get a car. We're going to find Detroit because we've never been to Detroit. <laughs> we're going to find Greektown, We're going to find this monkey. We're going to give him as many bananas as we can. We're going to get a bunch of tickets. We're going to Sell them to my sister, sell them to my friends, we're going to make a profit, or it's going to be an amazing thing. And I'm thinking to myself, dude, you had me at monkey, okay, I am in. I don't care what this takes, this is adventure. This is something that the guy who usually has to be the person who says, run you idiots, run, gets to now be a part of. And so we spend an entire day on this adventure. We, we search all over town. We find a car, which none of us had. We find bananas, which none of us could afford. We had no cash whatsoever, but we get gas in the car. We find friends who will join us in this search for a monkey someplace in the city of Detroit. We make it through traffic. We get downtown. We make our way through, and then we see a crowd of people. We throw the car in park. We jump out, and sure enough, there is a freaking monkey What we had forgotten, the group of us, is that George Michael at the time, with his big hit album, had a song called, strangely enough, Monkey. So a radio station had hired some 21-year-old intern to wear a monkey costume and to stand there on a street corner as probably 50 screaming people were trying to get tickets for the show for that night. And this kid in this monkey costume for the first time in his life had all the power in the world He waved his hands in the air and he would look around and maybe i'll pick that person and maybe that one We're in the back of this crowd. We've got our bananas Everyone's jumping up and down with their bananas and they can't get his attention We got to get to the front. We got to get away in there and my buddy looks at me and says Do you believe in me? Yes, I do, sir. I'm in. And he cups his hands, and I cup my hands, and he says to the smallest guy in our group, step up, put your hands in, put a banana in your hands, we're going to throw you over the crowd of people when you fly past the monkey, toss him your banana, so we get a couple tickets. And he said, solid. Solid. So we grip our hands. We lift them up. We throw as far as 18-year-olds can throw another 18-year-old. And what we learned in that moment is that humans are not that aerodynamic. (laughs) That a crowd of people who really wants to get tickets isn't going to move. And when an 18-year-old lands on top of them, you will see an entire column of human beings fall directly in front of you. Now... The one positive that happened at this moment as all of humanity dropped in front of us was that the monkey, for one brief moment, turned his head and looked at us. There was an open column of people on the ground and a monkey staring at us and without thinking, I took my banana and I threw it, thinking he'll catch it and then we'll have two free tickets to go see George Michael tonight. And this 21-year-old did not expect to see a banana hurled at him. And it bounced off his chest. And my buddy, the bad influence, threw three more bananas as fast as he could that just bounced off this kid. And now everyone in this 50-person group thinks to themselves, maybe we should just throw the bananas. And they all start pelting this poor intern. And he screams, ah, at the top of his lungs. And then he screams, police. And it's at that moment I realize I'm in Detroit, downtown, surrounded by police officers in different locations. All of them wondering why a riot is beginning Involving a monkey and a bunch of bananas. And I look at my friend, this person who I've given faith to for the first time in many years, and I say, what on earth do we do? And he just looked at me and said, run, you idiots, run. And that's my story. We hope you
0: enjoyed Madison's Story Slam adventure. A lot of great stories there. I particularly enjoyed Marty's and uh, really liked Keith and Avery there at the end. It's cool when we get young people on the podcast telling stories and sharing moments of their life. Speaking about sharing moments from your life, you could do that at our next Story Slam, which is this Saturday, April 15th. The theme then will be Here Goes Nothing. So come share a story about a time that you... Did something that you didn't know if you should do, and you just went for it anyway. Uh, May 20th will be our uh, final Story Slam of the season. Big thanks to Ale Asylum for sponsoring us uh, each month, and a big thanks to our supporters. We'll see you next time.